Hey there, podcast listeners. This is Jonathan Anderson with Research Computing at University of Colorado Boulder. I recorded this interview quite a while ago now, but between being dissatisfied with the recording quality and changing priorities at Research Computing, I I never managed to get it edited and published, but I'm here today to correct that. I had a great time speaking with Andreas and Aneska, and could not be more appreciative of their willingness to take time out of their schedule at Jilla to come speak with me about their research. I hope you can look past some technical deficiencies with the recording and forgive the delay in getting this out. I really do hope to start recording these again more frequently, but until then, thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the conversation. It's May 19, 2016. This is Research Computing at University of Colorado Boulder. My name is Jonathan Anderson. I'm joined today by guests from the Jilla Research Institute here at CU. Uh, if you could introduce yourselves, tell us a little bit about uh, yourselves and your role at, at Jilla. Uh, Andreas, first name. Hi, my name is Andreas Becker. I'm an associate professor at the Department of Physics and I'm a fellow of Jilla. And I'm Agnieszka Jaren-Becker. I'm the uh, research associate professor at CU and associate fellow in Jilla. And, and thank you uh, both so much for agreeing to come in. I, we are pretty new here, and uh, this is the first opportunity we've had to speak with researchers at CU, and particularly researchers who have made use of the research computing, uh, high-performance computing infrastructure here on campus. So we really appreciate your time and, uh, and your insight. Yeah, uh, thank you for inv- inviting us. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, uh, before we get started with uh, real topical stuff, what can you tell us about uh, your background uh, before CU? Where did you study? What was your research? And then maybe what brought you to CU? Okay, I'm from Germany. I was born in Germany. I studied in Germany. Actually, the city is, is Bielefeld. It's near to Hanover, if you know this. Um, I've done the, there my PhD. As a postdoc, I went then to Canada. Afterwards, I went back, came back to uh, Germany. I was at the Max Planck Institute at, uh, for the physics of complex systems in Dresden. I had a small research group over there. And then I came over here to, uh, we were attracted to the US coming to Boulder. Great. And I'm from Poland, so I studied and I did my PhD at Warsaw University in Poland. And then I did postdoc at uh, Bielefeld University at Dresden University and Max Planck Institute uh, for Complex Systems in Dresden. And in, in at Dresden University, I did uh, theoretical chemistry. <laughs> so <laughs> I have background in theoretical, theoretical physics and, and chemistry. Okay, uh, great. So I, I, I took some time beforehand and visited the Jilla website and tried to get some kind of context for how, you know, where you are in groups and things. And I saw uh, a Becker group and a, a Jaren Becker group, and then a separate like ultra 
uh, ultra fast atomic uh, molecular, which I guess is is uh, uh, UAO or some UAMO. <laughs> Sorry, uh, yeah, ultra. Uh, there we go. Ultra fast AMO theory group. Uh, how are these groups related? Is it mostly the AMO theory group, and and the other two are just kind of organizational things? Uh, kind of. Yeah. So the ultra fast AMO theory group is is we are heading it jointly together. And uh, but there are graduate students that are belonging to me that I'm mainly advising. Some other students are advised by Agnieszka, but uh, the the students should talk to each other. They are collaborating with each other, and we have a lot of joint meetings. We have projects. Uh, mainly, we can say something like this: 70 to eighty percent of our projects are joint, and then we have our own interests. For, uh, um, so I, I understand that you've recently published some major results, and, and in collaboration, I, I think with um, with professors Margaret Murnane, is that how I'm saying it right? Correct. And, and Henry Captain. Right. Right. Uh, what can you tell me about uh, this publication? I, I guess it's reconstruction of a, a light field. Uh, what What does it mean to reconstruct a light field, and why is this important, interesting, useful? Okay, maybe we can say a bit, a bit broader that uh, the this experimental group headed by Margaret Monane and uh, Henry Captain was one of the main reasons why we came actually to see you. We were before always uh, very interested already to collaborate with experimental groups, and when we were then looking for uh, more permanent positions also here in in Boulder, uh, the group of Margaret Monane and Henry Captain is one of the world leading groups in in our field of research of ultrafast. Uh, research and that was one of the main attractions why uh, we were coming and we were so happy that that we got, actually got an offer to, to come over here and uh, we could collaborate with them. Uh, great. Um, at what is the nature of that collaboration? I understand that they're uh, an experimental uh, physics uh, physics group mm -hmm. and that the two of you are, are the, the, uh, the aforementioned uh, ultra-fast uh, molecular optical theory group is or is um, it's a theory is, group. is theoretical. Theoretical uh, and computational. What's the relationship group. between these two? How do they work together? Um, so, <coughs> Margaret Manane and Heimlich Captain are world leaders in the process that is called high harmonic generation. That is where you are converting uh, laser frequencies from the infrared to longer wavelengths, and especially you would like to reach the the X-ray uh, regime, and uh, so the they are working on this for for nearly two decades already. They are really the uh, the, the project leaders in in this sense, and we are coming in to support these kind of experiments with our computational and, and uh, theoretical expertise. So we have learned a lot from them. We have developed then our our, our theory programs and numerical simulations, and now we can con contribute to how the that we can understand their experimental results. Okay, so the, the theory then provides kind of an underlying prediction and, and understanding of what is going on in the yeah. experiment. Yeah, yeah, in more detail. Uh, uh, and sometimes you can see something in, in a theoretical computation uh, that you cannot see in the experiment. We can look into a, something like a solution of a Schrodinger equation that, uh, where, where they see the outcome, they see the light, but we can see what, what is actually going on on the atomic level. And that is helping to understand the processes that are going on there and, and the great results that they find in the experiments. 
Yeah, you, you mentioned the Schrodinger equation in the notes that I got ahead of time, and I'm not a physicist. Uh, sure. What is the Schrodinger equation, and, and what is its relationship to this project? So it's partial differential equation that one needs to solve in space and time. So Yeah, it's the basic equations of, of quantum mechanics. So you probably know from classical mechanics, everything is built up from Newton equations that explain you the, the, the classical mechanics. Uh, in, the, in the classical work, in quantum mechanics, the basic equation is the Schrodinger equation that describes a certain system, a certain process, and this is what we as theoreticians have to solve. And uh, that is difficult to solve in this uh, um, part of research because there are different interactions uh, that are of similar strengths and cannot find analytical solutions. That's why our students and we have to solve it on the computer. Okay. Um, what what is day-to-day -day collaboration with the uh, Captain Murnane group like? Are you uh, are they performing experiments and you simulating kind of day-to-day -day and passing results back and forth? Yes, and we meet uh, regularly and discuss the results, both theory and experiment, and see how we can understand it and uh, how we can make progress in understanding what's going on. And has this relationship started with this project or have you been working with them for a while now? No, this is this has actually started when we came in 2008 and that is the great thing if you have an experimentalist and a theoretical group in one building, you can just on day-to-day -day basics the graduate students and the project leaders can talk to each other. It's not that you are sending emails back and forth, but you can just sit in one room you can grab everyone, sit in one room, and discuss what, disca what came out of the experiment or what came out of the theoretical uh, simulation. So we are collaborating since 2008, more strongly since after, let's say, since 2010 or so. So this is not the first project that we are doing together, but uh, it's, a, it's a whole series of projects All that right. has been done. And it's ongoing. Um. So you're, you're doing these simulations, and uh, the, the other group is, is doing an experiment. Uh, how did the experimental and simulated results compare in this project? Uh, oh, they just compare great in, in this specific project. So when I think one, what I has to point out is that here in, in this experiment, the experimentalists have, have uh, developed a new method, how they can reconstruct from their experimental observables that they see the electric field of, of the light that they observe. So one needs to understand that light is an electromagnetic wave. What is important here in our regime is the electric field, and you would like to see how the electric field actually looks like as a function of time. Uh, this we can easily see in our theoretical simulations because this is what we solve in the end for. But in the experiment, you need to reconstruct it. And they found a beautiful method how to do this. So uh, they measure their light. They have a, a certain process uh, from which they can reconstruct the electric field. And the electric field that they have reconstructed, they compare them with what we find out in our numerical simulations or what we are predicting from the numerical simulation. And the agreement is almost perfect. So the experiment works wonderful. Great. Uh, does, so does I'm trying to understand here, does reconstruction mean the creation or the generation of a certain type of light intentionally and making sure that the light you're producing is... I, I, I'm, I'm not really understanding what... No, what you, what you do here is actually you produce a certain light first and you would like to reconstruct how the electric field looks like. Okay. And once you understand this, how that you, that you see in the um, experiment how the electric field looks like, then you can start to control how 
how the electric field should look like for a certain process and which light you want would like to uh, would like to generate. Okay, so it allows you to predict what the field will be for a certain type of generated light. Sorry. Yeah. It, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I see. So you can see it on a computer, for example. You can see the function, how it's changing in time. Yeah, so we can see it so. all the time on the computer, but in an experiment you have to deduce it from something what you observe. And there they have made great progress in this, that they found a method how they can reconstruct what we see already on the computer. And what they reconstruct from their experimental measurements is just looks exactly like what we have on the computer. I see. Um, what I was reading, at, at least in the abstract, but I think in the paper also, was that uh, this is one of the most complex coherent light uh, fields produced to date. Uh, what makes the light field complex, or what does it mean for it to be one of the most complex light fields? So maybe what one has to understand here is that uh, this is a, a light field, an electric field that is changing on the on an attosecond time scale, and maybe we should briefly introduce what is an attosecond. So an attosecond is 10 to the minus 18 seconds. So uh, um, one second compares to one attosecond as a one second compares to three thirty billion years. So it's 10 to the minus 18. You have divided 18 times by 10 the second, then you arrive at an attosecond. And on this time scale, actually, the electric field, the underlying electric field of the light is actually rotating in space here. Yeah, and we will can, we in the experiment, the people can, uh, our, our colleagues can now uh, reconstruct how this light field in amplitude and in direction is changing on this ultra-short time scale. And this has never been done before. It has been done for linear polarization, where it's just changing up and down in one direction, but now it's also rotating in, in space, the electric field vector. Okay. And that makes it so complex. Okay. And this reconstruction we can compare with direct simulation, yes? So in, in theory, we do something that is like a numerical experiment where we simulate the experiment like from the beginning and we can then see this uh, light that is generated in the experiment directly and compare with reconstructed uh, light from, from the experiment. So that's quite remarkable. You, you mentioned a little bit earlier that now that you have this ability, it will give you, I think, if I understood correctly, the ability to tailor the light source that you're generating to the kind of field that you're trying to generate. Um, but can you go into more, maybe more detailed or maybe more general uh, uh, description of how this research might be applied, what, uh, what it will enable? Yeah, so this process of high harmonic generation gives you a coherent X-ray light. So it gives you, in principle, a coherent version of the of the Röntgen X-ray tu tube. So with this, you can probe very, very nice and image uh, materials uh, on a nanoscale, and this at the same time, how it's changing on an ultra-fast time scale. So with what our experimental colleagues have have recently achieved, and what they were very successful over, over the last two years, was that this process for a long time could be done only for linearly polarized light, but uh, that is only for one polarization state. Now they can do, they can produce this light also circularly polarized, and this is very important for certain materials. So if you want to put, uh, probe certain magnetic materials, for example, you would like to have circularly polarized light. And once we understand now what kind of circular polarized light it has, they have, now we can try to control which kind of polarization it has. And this is something that the experimental group, and we will try to support them over this, or we will try to do over the next years, actually. Okay. Um. So one 
part that is important is that these experiments are tabletop. So basically one generates X-ray laser light in the tabletop experiments, which is much cheaper than what one usually, where one usually generates X-ray lasers. So it's, it's usually huge facilities like synchrotron uh, type facilities and, or, X, or free electron type facilities. And this costs much more money. They, so they can be kilometer longs. And here yes. they, they have a process where it works. It's an alternative process where they can just generate it in, in a lab. Right, yeah. that's something that, that I forgot to mention earlier. That I understand that uh, the Captain uh, Murnane group is uh, were the first experimentalists to generate uh, exactly, X-ray yeah. laser light in a tabletop laboratory. Yes, in a, in a laboratory setup. And that's, that's, that was a break, big breakthrough that they made in, in uh, about four years ago. Right. Yeah. Um, we'll go a little bit more computational here. Um, um, was there any novel computational development that you had to do to, to support this project to do the theoretical exercise? So maybe what one to try uh, to explain here is uh, what kind of computational work we have to do here. So the process that we are studying is is a process that happens in a, driven by an intense light field with an, with an atom. So we have to solve this on the microscopic level, the process. There is a process that is happening on the microscopic level for, for one atom. Uh, but at the same time, in the experiment, you have not just one atom, you have trillions of atoms. And in each of these atoms, the same process is happening. So we have to make computation. Our computation work is, is, is twofold. It is on one side, we have, to solve a, we have to solve the Schrodinger equation, the quantum mechanical equation, on the, for each atom. And then each of the atoms is generating light. And then we have to see how this light is adding up in an experiment coherently from all these different kind of atoms that they have in the experiment. So these are two different things. And that was that is the big thing that where we needed the actually the uh, high, high performance computing here at, at CU for. Because, and where it is so attractive for us to use this high com performance computing, because naturally the, the nature is already paralyzing it for us. Each atom is doing the same kind of stuff. So we are doing the solution for each atom of the of the Schrodinger equation on one node at, uh, at the Janus computer, and then each node is simulating one atom. So in this sense, we are, uh, nature has paralyzed this uh, this um, this kind of process naturally for us already. So for this particular project, we had to include this different polarization of the driving field and the generated light. So that means in for the linearly polarized driving laser light, one can use symmetry and reduce the dimensions that we need to solve it for, for one atom, but also for spatial dimension. Yes, yeah, spatial dimension. And uh, for this kind of project, we had to extend it. So that's, that was the modification we had to use, made. You're describing the parallelization as, say, an atom per node or an atom per core or something like that. Is, are the processes for each of those relatively independent, or is there much kind of... Uh, no, they are pretty much independent, okay. yeah. So like in nature, it's also independent. So here it's, it's actually, we are just simulating like in nature. So the process is happening in each atom independently. And then each node in the computer is calculating also for each atom. And then we are adding up the results that we are getting from each node. And that's why our the work, actually, the computational work that we are doing here to in, in collaboration, actually, with a group in, in, in Spain, with a former postdoc that we had here, uh, 
is is naturally paralyzed already. Um, forgive me if this is a, a little um, out of context. It's, I was hoping originally that Pete would be here. I don't know if you know Pete, right? I, oh, I we know you, Pete. You know Pete. Oh, uh, Pete was a Gila before. <laughs> yeah. So we lost him to uh, you. Him. <laughs> so we are unhappy about that. <laughs> right. He's, he's up at University of Wyoming uh, participating in a, uh, a site review up there. So mm -hmm. he's not able to be here today, but he's uh, included in here. Um, what numerical methods are appropriate for these studies? What did you use um, for this? How to do this on the one atom level has been developed before already in our group and by many other groups in the world actually, or by several other groups in the world. What here we could, how we could use the Janus supercomputer is just that now we cannot do it for one atom, we can do it for many atoms at the same time. And this is what is happening in the experiment actually. And uh, so we can simulate the experiment here. So in this sense, we didn't have to develop much, much new. We had to parallelize yeah. the code. But and this th for this we use standard software programs actually that um, that uh, that you are providing. Yeah. What kind of software is it that you're using? This is MPI just. Well, but is there um, is there a kind of existing computational package that or is it all custom code that you're no, writing? No, it's to all custom. Just okay. Are you planning any follow-up extensions or new directions for this research project? Oh yeah, there is ongoing uh, projects. So we now have to further understand what's going on in in the experiment. This is this was one intermediate step that that we took there. But uh, there is application of this light. How can we control the polarization state of the light? So our experimental colleague Margaret Monane has just uh, won a big award uh, um, grant for this, uh, a Murray grant for this, and we are included in this. So this this kind of research will go on for the next uh, three five years or so. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so one of the holy grail is to increase the intensities of those uh, X-ray pulses because then one can more easily use those pulses to image what is happening on the ultra-fast timescale with, for example, f magnetic materials, how the magnetization is changing and developing and, and study this kind of projects is in experiment and theory. <laughs> Is this also uh, a tabletop versus non-tabletop thing where there's higher intensity available, but getting that intensity at a tabletop yeah, at, setting is... At, at the large facilities, you usually get higher intensities already. So this is this is something that we have to achieve on the tabletop. Okay. So the, the tabletop is very nice, but it has one little drawback is that we have to increase the intensities. And on this, we are working and we are yeah. positive that this will happen. Absolutely. So you've talked a bit about... Uh, how having an HPC resource aids aids in your research. What do you look for in an HPC system? Have you been on other HPC systems, presumably? What makes it useful to you, or what aspects? So for this particular project, we need many threads, yeah, but they do not have to be synchronized. So it's relatively easy with respect to like requirements for the parallel computer. We do not have high requirements for the memory or something like this. So we just need a number of as large. more nodes you can give yeah. us, as better. Yeah. <laughs> is this a primarily floating point or a primarily integer floating point? Floating point. I, I asked because I was on a system earlier that was an AMD bulldozer-based system, and I don't know if you know about that architecture, but it uh, has a single integer unit that share or no, two integer units that share a floating point unit. Mm -hmm. So for integer codes, it was very fast, and you had 64 cores per mm -hmm. node, but. Uh, if you had yeah. a floating point code, suddenly it seemed like you only had 32 cores. And yeah. uh, so what part 
has the uh, HPC re resources at uh, CU Research Computing uh, played in, in your research? Do you use other systems also, or is it all pretty much Janus and, and other things? We used Exceed for other projects. Okay. Yeah. But this is for us, it's, it's, it's very convenient to have such a supercomputer here. The interaction just with the people here is, is on a day-to-day -day basis. You can go over, you can talk to the people. So for our graduate students, it's just great also that you're organizing sometimes sco small schools or workshops also. So they are profiting a lo lot from this. And I feel also th that what you have with uh, developed with this is a uh, it's very strong is the educational aspects. So students can get very quickly involved actually in this. They can try out something. And we very often encourage also students which maybe on the long term will be not a, uh, a program where we use uh, parallel computers very much in detail, but we encourage them just to get involved in this and to get some expertise in, in uh, parallelizing a code. When they go out later into the non-academic world or so, they, they might use it. I, this is something you've brought up a couple times, but it's something we're having uh, internal discussions about as well, the educational aspect of having HPC resources on campus. And physics has a long history of, you know, working with HPC and, and we kind of know how to deal with physics researchers and physics students and there's a support structure there of existing researchers who are doing HPC and can kind of point students in the right direction. But where we're seeing a uh, kind of new to HPC research groups come in and the students don't necessarily know how to get started and we don't really know how to train them or help them get started because there's not an existing support structure there. Do you have any thoughts on good ways to help new students or new researchers who haven't done high performance computing before? Uh, it's actually, a hard question. We don't <laughs> know yet. I'm no, we, we actually have not thought about this, but maybe you should... We should, should meet another time and talk about uh, this. Uh, maybe <laughs> you need an introductory <laughs> workshop or something like this. We can ask also yeah. students what, what, are, what are their ideas because we have some <laughs> students that have learned that and maybe they have some comments. Yeah. Yeah, if something could yeah, be we can done bring easier you in, for them. Into contact with our students and, yeah. and they can tell you what was most helpful for them. You see, we are... We are we are pretty far away from this already, from this kind of learning process. It's more the students who are using it and who are working with it on a day-to-day -day basis. Sure. So, uh, but we can bring you into contact with them and you you can just ask. Yeah. So, so, so we try to like have one student teaching other student a little bit of a basic. So that's how it's easier done. So that one doesn't have to start from the scratch every time and learn everything from websites or <laughs> absolutely we've been playing with the idea of trying to set up a mentor like a cr uh, interdepartmental mentorship program for departments that don't already have HPC savvy students mm -hmm. to do that kind of cross training but I was just curious if you had any thoughts on that sure but if you're interested or so you can always contact us and uh, we bring you into contact with our students and they're they're happy to share their thoughts about it yeah absolutely mm -hmm. uh, so did you have to adjust your, your workflow or the algorithms that you use to do your research to optimize for Janus or, or any other uh, RC resources that you use, or, or has it kind of just been ready to go? In this case, it, I would say it was rather straightforward. So we had optimized, we can optimize a lot on our local computers and also on the re computational resources that we have within Gila. And within Gila, we have a, uh, a small parallel computer where we can test things, uh, can test our programs already before we bring them then to Janus. So the step, so to make the step 
uh, two genders actually as e as simple as possible. So uh, we didn't have to optimize very much in in this case. It was pretty much straightforward, but it's also an, a result of an ongoing project of a longer project already. So our our um, former postdoc Carlos Hernandez Garcia is using Janus already for some time. So. He had a, he, ha he has a lot of expertise to so do. So he had to paralyze his code when he came to Boulder for postdoc. So mm. that's when he started doing that. But this particular project really doesn't depend on architecture so much. So that's easier. Mm. Okay. Research computing is bringing on a new uh, HPC system. Hopefully soon. We keep having a few delays. Uh, called Summit. Uh, sometime this summer. And I was interested if you had any thoughts on how that system might support your research in the future, but it's fair enough that we haven't put a lot of detail out about it yet. Um, we will be happy to test it. Yes. <laughs> we will be happy to test it and we cross fingers that it works as quickly as possible because this is what our, our students are hoping for. Yeah. Yes, and, and we are soliciting early users, so if you have an application that you uh, oh, would like to test, uh, we'd be happy to get people on there. Several of our students have said already they would like love to do this. Yes. Is there anything about the research computing environment that is missing either today or from what you know we're bringing on in the future that would be useful to you that would support your research or make it easier to do your research? I cannot think of anything that that uh, we need yeah. that we need here at CU. For us, it's just a great opportunity to have it here, and we are so happy that, as uh, uh, Pete told us, that. Uh, that you, the grant was uh, was successful and uh, you can build the next system. Yeah, we're excited about it also. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Well, recording facilities were provided today by the Anderson Language and Technology Center at the University of Colorado Boulder. Again, our guests today were Andreas Becker and Agnieszka, uh, Jaron Becker from Jilla. Uh, thank you both for joining us. Uh, if our listeners would like to know more about your research, is there somewhere they should go, some website they should check out? Oh, they can check out the Gila website or they can send us an email. For example, my email address is andreas.becker at colorado.edu or they can just visit us at Gila. And I'll include a link to the Gila website in the that show notes also yeah. so that people sure. can get that. Um, if you'd like more information on research computing at CU, you can find us at rc.colorado.edu or email us at rnet rc-help at colorado.edu. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>